Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. I know I've said that this empire of vice, fueling the world beneath us, was so vast that it was managed by Meyer Lansky's architecture of offshore banks and profit distribution via wire transfers, not by bags of cash being dropped on a boss's desk like in the movies. But Roy Cohn got bags of cash dropped on his desk like in the movies. In 1984, after Roy Cohn had pressed the signature of Meyer Lansky's business front, Louis Rosensteel, onto a codicil, or Last Testament, granting Cohn control over Rosensteel's remaining assets from his liquor empire. But before Cohn was disbarred for it, another one of his clients delivered a bag to his desk with $175,000 in cash. It was payment for a sudden reduction to Mario Giganti's prison term, approved by Judge Charles Stewart on the recommendation of Senator Al D'Amato. Mario Giganti was the brother of Vinny the Chin, boss of the Genovese crime family at the time. The call from D'Amato had reached Judge Stewart after making its way through the new U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, a prosecutor who, himself, was the son and nephew of men in Frank Costello's territory when he was running things for Lucky Luciano. The father and uncle, Harold and Leo, were enforcers, loan sharks, and gamblers who ran their operation out of Leo's restaurant, Vincent's, named after a grandfather who'd been shaken down and then folded in by the Black Hand Mafia. Contemporaries of Paul Castellano, the father and uncle, operated in the neighborhood that was Costello's. It's unclear if they were captains of his or even had an official title but the connections to Costello's parent operation were numerous. Harold was even connected to Costello's boxing circuit. His best friend was a top cut man who went on to serve as the personal secretary for New York State Supreme Court Judge Thomas Aurelio, who journalist Wayne Barrett called, quote, the most notorious mob-tied judge on the bench in Manhattan. End quote. Giving Roy Cohn's father on the state Supreme Court a run for his money. As a maternal uncle, Leo's last name was Devonzo. The father's, Harold's, was Giuliani. And he named his son after his father, Rodolfo. 
I'm not sure if Rodolfo was ever called Rudy, but Harold Giuliani's son, the new SDNY attorney, who would later deny Senator Al D'Amato's account of the call to reduce the prison sentence for Vinnie the Chin's brother, seemed to take to the nickname just fine. I'm more than certain that Costello approved. We launched our series with a question that arose from a particular study of two assassinations that happened in 1985. The gangland hits of Big Paul Castellano, then head of the Gambino crime family, and F.C. Agron, the KGB-affiliated little godfather of the Russian mafia in America. There was that detail, remember? The seven months between those two hits. The same seven months that Sammy the Bull Gravano spent planning the execution of his boss, Paul Castellano. Could there possibly be a connection? Could the killing of F.C. Agron been just one step in a broader mafia operation? To try and flesh that answer out, we dove into the lesser-told history of American crime lords. What could we learn about the secret domain in which these men ruled, especially Paul Castellano? And now that we've spent a season exploring it, does Paul's domain in the world beneath lead us to F.C. Agron's? Is there a story of an invasion in that broader, darker underworld where our Cold War enemy, the Soviet Union, found a way to infiltrate the ultimate levers of power in America from our underworld up? I can tell you the simple answer that I found after years of research and inquiry. Yes, we absolutely were. And we wouldn't have had a Trump presidency without it. I'm not saying this to be political. I'm saying it because, to quote Donald, it is what it is. But to adequately and responsibly demonstrate that answer for you, it will take as long as it took me to gather all the facts, character stories, and nuances of this hidden history. A full five seasons, at least, of this series. Because the biggest barrier to grasping that truth is the ignorance that we've all had for over a century now about the underworld itself. We have to first understand that, our own history, and how it's connected to the history of the underworld and other nations, before we can see that answer, that simple yes, as clearly and obvious as the proverbial nose on our face. In our last episode, our gangsters, Vito Genovese, Carlo Gambino, three other bosses, and some new blood on the rise, like Vinny the Chin and Paul Castellano, had emerged from the Appalachian meeting with a new structure to the Italian-American underworld. Luciano's syndicate would now be called La Cosa Nostra, and there was much to be discussed. Reporting on that meeting says that one of the major agenda items 
was who would get the smuggling empire that the syndicate had built under Rothstein, Torrio, Lansky, and Luciano. All we have on how that decision may have been resolved are the following details and facts. First, in 1958, seven months after the Appalachian meeting, Vito Genovese was arrested, charged, and eventually convicted for heroin trafficking as was his rising star, Vinny the Chin. Second, after the meeting, Carlo Gambino suddenly had some of Lucky Luciano's prime territory. He had Manhattan, at least in construction and racketeering, and he had a new rule that was specific to the Gambino family, meaning, if you really think about it, it was a rule from the new commission of bosses as well. Gambino gave the word to his underboss, captains, and soldiers. You do drugs, you're dead. This rule wasn't for the use of drugs, but for the business of drugs. Apparently, that was Genovese territory. And I wonder, because that's all I can do with these facts, is wonder... If that was the real deal that was struck, Gambino got Manhattan and Genovese got the smuggling empire, only to promptly be sent away because of it. There remain suspicions over the strength of Vito's conviction, with rumors of informants and even Luciano from Italy manipulating evidence and events to make sure Vito Genovese was put away. The other bosses grew suspicious of the flurry of men who'd been buying their way into the families to become made men. With Vito's conviction, they were concerned about federal informants making their way in. So, the membership books were closed. They wouldn't be opened again for 20 years, in the mid-70s, with the underboss and hitman who would later plan the assassination of Carlo Gambino's successor, Paul Castellano, being one of the first newly made men. And that's where we're picking up, to get to the connections between the Castellano and F.C. Agron hits. With everyone from the Appalachian meeting now dead, we're left with a million scattered facts and details on the decades of mob rule from 1958 to 1985, and the endless public testimonies of all these gangsters. I don't know if you've noticed, but Italian gangsters like to talk. They talk all the time. They can't stop talking. Truly, only a few plead the fifth. They testify to the Senate, like with the Cafalver and Valachi hearings, describing Cosa Nostra and its traditions in detail. And those were broadcast to the world. They testify in court, flipping on one another. And those become official public transcripts and front-page news. They write books. They give interviews. They are so chatty about their omerta, one would think they were politicians. But those are the Italians. The other gangsters, who were sweeping into Lucky's old territory, and the Office of Naval Intelligence's 3rd Naval District, were as tight-lipped as they come. 
Who were the Voivisaconia, and why were they washing up on our shores? For a brief lesson, and we'll dive further in future seasons, let's turn to the writings of investigative journalist Robert Friedman from his exceptional book, Red Mafia. With your indulgence, we're just going to read from it. The Vorvazakonyi, or Thieves-in-Law, is a fraternal order of elite criminals that dates back to the time of the Tsars. They first arose during the reign of Peter the Great, 1682 to 1725, incubated in the vast archipelago of Russia's prison camps. There, hardcore felons banded together in tight networks that soon spread throughout the gulags. Members were sworn to abide by a rigid code of behavior that included never working in a legitimate job, not paying taxes, refusing to fight in the army, and never, for any reason, cooperating with the police or state, unless it was to trick them. A giant eagle with razor-sharp talons emblazoned on their chests announced their status as Vors. Tattoos on their kneecaps meant they would not bow to anyone. They even developed a secret language that proved to be virtually indecipherable to authorities and set up a communal criminal fund, or obshak, to bribe officials, finance business ventures, and help inmates and their families. The Vore Brotherhood grew in strength to the point that they began to play an unusual role in the nation's history. They taught Lenin's gangs to rob banks to fund the communist revolution. Later, enemies of the new state used them to sow dissension, fear, and chaos. During the Second World War, Stalin devised a plot to annihilate the thriving Vore subculture by recruiting them to defend the motherland. Those who fought with the Red Army, defying the age-old prohibition of helping the state, were rewarded by being arrested after the war and thrown into the same prison camps with the Vores who had refused to join the epic conflict. The collaborators were branded Suki, or bitches. At night, when the Arctic concentration camps grew miserably cold, knives were unsheathed and the two sides hacked each other to pieces. Barracks were bombed and set on fire. The Vore Wars, or Bitches Wars, lasted from 1945 to 1953. When they were over, only the Vores who refused to battle the Nazis had survived. As the Vore Wars were raging in the Soviet prisons, the iron walls of communism were slamming down across the nations outside of them. Given the gross inequities of communism, where corruption isn't just widespread, but the business of the state, it was almost inevitable that the Soviet Union would be plagued by an almost institutionalized culture of thievery. As Pulitzer Prize winner David Remnick, a former Washington Post correspondent in Moscow, has portrayed the situation, it was as if the entire Soviet Union were ruled by a gigantic mob family known as the CPSU, Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Beneath the thin veneer of official communism lay a vast underground economy of off-the-book factories, food co-ops, and construction companies that were the basis of the burgeoning black market in everything from medicine to foodstuffs. Store and restaurant managers, directors of state enterprises, 
officials of local, regional, and even national party institutions, and operators of collective and state farms all trafficked in illegal business. Corruption was so pervasive in the Black Sea port of Odessa, historically a major seat of organized crime in Russia, that the first secretary of the city's party community was sentenced to death in the early 1970s for black marketeering. By the end of the Brezhnev period, the underground sector of the economy accounted for as much as 50% of the personal income of Soviet workers. But it was the apparatchiks and black marketeers who profited the most, living like feudal lords in ornate hilltop palaces and summer villas, relaxing in private sanatoriums, shopping in special stores filled with Japanese consumer goods and traveling abroad, the most coveted privilege in the restrictive Soviet Union. But the black marketeers weren't the only ambitious Russians with an entrepreneurial bent. They often included nationally renowned members of the intelligentsia, sports stars, chess champions, and the cream of the art and entertainment worlds. These individuals would journey overseas under the patronage of friendly politicians, bringing back choice wares like Citroen cars, motorboats, and designer fashions for resale. Many became multimillionaires. Unsurprisingly, the state, while officially denying the existence of crime, tolerated the criminal underworld, the thugs and extortionists, who played a prime role in feeding the country's repressed appetite for consumer goods. Organized crime in the Soviet Union bears the stamp of the Soviet political system, wrote a lawyer who had worked in the Soviet Ministry of Justice in his expose, USSR, The Corrupt Society. It was characteristic of the system that the ruling district elite acted in the name of the party as racketeers and extortionists, and that the criminal underworld, per se, paid through the nose to the district apparat for stolen goods and services. Just as with our own mafia dons and thugs, the narrative of the Voivizukonye, that they shunned any individuals in the realms of law enforcement, politics, the state, or intelligence, was horseshit. What would later become the Kremlin-serving oligarchy class of Putin's Russia built their siphons of wealth from the underworld in the Soviet eras of Stalin, Khrushchev, and Brezhnev. The state and the underworld has always been tethered together, if not fused. Out of this mix came F.C. Agron, with his cattle prod that he used to terrorize any other Soviet emigre in his territory who refused his authority. He and they came to America in the Brezhnev era thanks to the Jackson-Vanik Amendment, a trade act with non-market economies in the Soviet bloc that rested on the human rights violations happening primarily to Soviet Jews. Jewish immigration would be permitted from the Soviet Union. Those citizens needed to get out of communist rule. The persecutions they were suffering were so abhorrent and the Jackson-Vanik Amendment rightly offered them a way to escape from behind the Iron Curtain and into the free world. According to former KGB officer Yuri Shevets and others, the KGB, of course, took advantage of this. Whether we, the United States, were aware of it or not, the Kremlin made it a prerequisite 
for anyone emigrating out of the Soviet Union via Jackson Vanek to sign an agreement with them to be instruments of the state while in America. They were to be made available to the KGB and cooperate when and where requested. There simply was no going to America without signing on the KGB's bottom line. So, they did it. Then made the journey, many through Israel and Rome, Italy, and ignored those bastards. They were finally free. Why work for the Kremlin's bastards who'd terrorize them? Most of the Soviet immigrants went on with their lives, as most all immigrants do, as great and honorable American citizens. But intentionally thrown in the immigration channel by the KGB were the Vor. According to Robert Friedman, In a two-year period, more than 66,000 Russian Jews emigrated, compared to just 2,808 in 1969. But with what must have been considerable amusement, the Soviets made certain that this vast exodus was not made up solely of innocent persecuted Jews. Much as Fidel Castro would do several years later during the Marielle boatlift, the KGB took this opportunity to empty its jails of thousands of hardcore criminals. And that's how the little godfather of the Russian mafia made his way to Brooklyn. Smack! in the heart of Genovese territory. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. F.C. Agron would rule over the Russian emigre communities of Coney Island and Brighton Beach with a formidable captain and bodyguard named Boris Neyfeld. The driver, who was waiting for Agron in the car, to take him to Meyer Lansky's old bathhouse on the morning Agron was assassinated. And Marat Balagula, a steely cold businessman, businessman in quotes, who was Agron's consigliere. As mentioned before, Agron ran his operation out of a club he held ownership in, the El Carib. His partner was Morton Levine a wealthy Brooklyn doctor and uncle to a future president's personal attorney, Michael Cohen. Now, Uncle Morty may not have known who F.C. Agron really was when he embraced him in business, but it's hard to believe that he did not know who Agron, Boris Neyfeld, and Marat Balagula were once they were terrorizing the Russian-American Jewry in the neighborhood. What is known 
is that Uncle Morty wasn't the person who introduced F.C. Agron to the Genovese crime family. That role was played by Murray Wilson, a cousin of Marvin Josephson, the founder of Hollywood talent agency International Creative Management, ICM. Wilson was an import-export guy and restaurateur who found himself at the wrong end of at least eight DOJ criminal probes. He fell into that life, honestly, by being one of Meyer Lansky's and Lucky Luciano's early soldiers. During the 50s and 60s, Murray Wilson rose in his career under Benny Eggs Mangano to oversee the Genovese family's multi-billion dollar racketeering enterprise. Through Wilson, F.C. Agron was introduced across the leadership of the Genovese family, and the two families started running rackets together. But Murray wasn't Agron's only ace in the hole. The second man directly responsible for Agron's rise in power was the man who called F.C. his best friend. Ronald Greenwald. From Richard Nixon's campaign up until his resignation from the presidency in 1974, one year before F.C. Agron emigrated, Ronald Greenwald had been an advisor to the president. He began with Nixon as a member of CREEP, the Committee to Re-Elect the President, the fundraising and advisory organization of Nixon's 1976 presidential campaign. The same money laundering and slush fund organization that had been involved in Watergate and counted Roger Stone as a member. Greenwald was a first generation American with big dreams. Born in 1934 to European immigrant parents on Manhattan's Lower East Side, he went on to study Torah in Cleveland, Ohio, becoming a rabbi and focused his life efforts on education, specifically expanding Jewish day schools across America. His path to Nixon and Creep came after he dipped his toe in politics to help the New York gubernatorial campaign of Nelson Rockefeller in the 1960s. Once he had, Greenwald was hooked. While education remained important and defining himself as a scholar and educator paramount to his identity, power would be Greenwald's core focus. And in it, he was relentless. He climbed the political power ladder as a Nixon advisor to insert himself into a world as seemingly unrelated to education as there could be the nexus of international spy trading, high-stakes hostage releases, and presidential pardons. For the decade of F.C. Agron's rule in America, Greenwald would continuously use his power to go to bat for his friend, including forging a relationship with the new U.S. attorney at the Southern District of New York. Rudy Giuliani. Although Rudy has denied ever conceding to Greenwald's requests, officially looking the other way where it came to the Russian mafia's godfather, 
he did start throwing some really great parties at El Carib. Wherever one could exert influence to help F.C. Agron escape the lawful consequences of his criminal enterprise, Ronald Greenwald was there. Aside from his professed love for his friend, any business, economic, or personal survival motivations for this championing have yet to be fully explored. So, it was in the combination of these two American supporters and sponsors of F.C. Agron, Murray Wilson and Ronald Greenwald, that established the first American boss of bosses of the Russian Mafia. Friedman writes, Without Greenwald's careful nurturing of Agron's criminal career and the Italian Mafia's muscle, the Russian mob in America might never have been anything more than a minor annoyance, a two-bit gang of emigre hoodlums. So who whacked him? Who put that bullet in F.C. Agron's temple, and why? It's officially an unsolved murder. But all arrows point to the men who took over the enterprise, Marat Pelagula and Boris Neifeld. First, like Agron, they were both stone-cold killers. They certainly had the means, opportunity, and motive. The Russian mafia didn't follow the same codes as Cosa Nostra. Their families were not born out of the same history. Assassinating a boss from within was no big deal, especially if there was a treasure chest, a money flow, that he was less capable of managing and growing. And what was the business that Balagula and especially Nefeld were in? Heroin. By the mid-1980s, Boris Nefeld was running a heroin smuggling operation on a comparable scale to the French connection. He obtained the drugs in Southeast Asia, smuggled them into Gordon Lim's old territory where they were stashed in TV tubes, as in television sets. Then shipped off to Poland through a Belgium-based import-export company. There, the drugs were bodied by Russian couriers with U.S. passports and Brighton Beach addresses. Poland was such an odd departure point for heroin, custom officials missed it altogether. In New York, reports name Sicilians as Nefeld's main clients for the heroin, who then distributed it through the network. Remember the use of that term, Sicilians. It's another detail. We'll dive into their specific names in the future. For now, we simply have these data points to move over and land right in the middle of Cosa Nostra's own heroin enterprise. The one run by the man who would call for Paul Castellano's head. The captain of a crew who were all told from their earliest days the one unbreakable rule of their family you do drugs, you're dead. Gambino captain John Gotti and his soldiers known as the Bergen crew. J. Edgar Hoover would only leave his post as FBI director through death. 
He died from a heart attack in 1972, two years before the Jackson-Vanek Amendment formally passed. He wouldn't live to see the wave of Soviet-born mafiosos wash into the territory of the gangsters of his day. Who knows if he would have let their treasure chests grow and flourish the way he had Lansky and Luciano's. But if his pursuit of Lepke Bolkhalter on heroin smuggling charges is any indication, he may well have swung his hammer at their heads. Nearly a decade before his death, seemingly inexplicably, and despite the growing number of mafia cases during the Kennedy era, J. Edgar Hoover moved the mob off the FBI's top priority list and did away with his most effective weapon against them, the wiretaps or bugs in mob hangouts. After he died, that's some of the first shit the FBI brought back. We can credit New York's field agents and their abilities to plant bugs and collect recordings for bringing the hard evidence to the Southern District, which then brought an end to both New York's Cosa Nostra, as Luciano had constructed it, a syndicate ruled by commission of five family heads, bosses, and Paul Castellano's life. RICO was an acronym few knew in the year before the deaths of both F.C. Agron and Paul Castellano. It stands for the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act and was written by Cornell law professor G. Robert Blakey. When organized crime was ravaging New York in the 70s and 80s, completely gripping the city, the FBI, SDNY, and political leadership were helpless to stop it. They were simply overrun by the mob. There's a clear correlation between that dominance and Cosa Nostra opening its books, bringing new muscle and crew leadership into the families as made men. See, the thing to understand on how the revenues were made is that even in the days of Luciano, the American Mafia was not a micromanaged operation. Sure, it was managed top-down by the bosses, and the money flowed from the workers up to them. But crews were to make and manage their revenues under the leadership of the captains, who would report back to the bosses only where they might have specific needs or issues. Otherwise, they operated more in the vein of a franchise. Make your money, pay your tribute, run your business, buy these rules, however you best see fit. It was a business enterprise structure built on top of individual hustles. And for crew captain John Gotti, that individual hustle was heroin and cocaine. On the opposite side of the hustler's world, with federal, state, and city law enforcement throughout New York, fighting organized crime was dire and hopeless until Professor Blakey, who offered them the silver bullet solution with his well-constructed RICO Act. If the feds could prove that the five families in New York were coordinated in business together, 
then the five bosses could be brought to justice under Rico. Rather than trying to grab the little guys on the street, which were in the thousands by then, and prove impossible to round up in any meaningful way to stop the flow of crime, law enforcement could go for the neck of the five-headed snake and chop it off. They would successfully do so in the mid-1980s by getting wiretaps in key locations of the five family leadership and crews, including cars, homes, restaurants, the Bergen Hunt and Fish Club, where John Gotti and his crew met, thus the nickname the Bergen Crew, and Paul Castellano's mansion on Staten Island. The end result would be an infamous case led by the Southern District of New York against the Mafia. The case was known as the Commission Trial. The story of the investigation behind it is fascinating and intricate and already very well told in a recent docuseries on Netflix titled Fear City. I highly recommend it. Here's what we need to take the time on now to share about that investigation. In the weeks and months of wire collection, the FBI learned the following. First, the heads of the five families had been bid-rigging massive construction projects in the city. Just as the 70s and 80s across the five boroughs were a boon in organized crime, so was it a boon in construction, especially in Manhattan. Because the five families controlled every part of it. Construction companies, concrete, steel, and rebar, all of the unions that supplied the labor, everything. The part of Paul Castellano's Manhattan-based empire that was involved in concrete and construction was run by Sammy the Bull Gravano. The underboss who, after these tapes were collected, would soon plot the execution of his boss, Big Paul. But it wasn't over concrete. We'll come back to the why of that hit in a minute. Right now, based on what the FBI collected on those wiretaps about the construction industry in New York City, let's take a moment to think about the why behind people saying things like, well, he was a builder in Manhattan, so of course he had to work with the mob. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
being a businessman who has to work with organized crime and being a business front born into organized crime are two categorically, galactically different things. The big builders in New York City in this era were more than likely the latter. Let's take our former president just as an example. Because he was a literal cipher for the FBI in the criminal case that they and the Southern District built against the mob bosses. There were eight main companies that put in construction bigs for city-approved projects with developers or builders. All of those companies were front companies for the five families in different combinations. SNA Concrete was one of the eight, and it was formed by two of Roy Cohn's clients, Paul Castellano and Fat Tony Salerno, the acting boss of the Genovese, while Vinnie the Chin was playing madman in a bathrobe. SNA was created specifically for Donald Trump, thanks to his father, Fred, who had a multi residential empire in Genovese and FCA Grand territories across Brooklyn. Remember Donald recounting that quote of his dad's, Fred's? That's not our territory, Fred said, when Donald wanted to first build in Manhattan. Well, it's pretty safe to assume that's because Manhattan was Gambino territory and Fred had stuck to Genovese territory for his entire career. So, a deal was worked out. SNA was formed as a jointly owned company between Salerno and Castellano, and then launched the bid rigging circuit for the commission with the seven other companies. Here's how the bid rigging worked if a construction project was over $2 million, it moved out of the individual hustle territory of the captains and crews and into the commission territory of bosses ruling all decisions. They would fix the bids for these big projects by pre-selecting which company would get the job. Then, having all the companies enter bids in such a fashion to ensure that the one chosen to get it ahead of time came in with the best offer. It was all rigged. Before the builder or developer even knew which companies would bring in a bid and how high they would make it. Unless, of course, your name was Trump, because one of the companies was actually formed for you, by your dad's friends, and your fixer, Roy Cohn. That SNA concrete led Donald's name to being all over those wiretaps. When a bid reached a level of 18 million or so, it was literally named by these bosses and crews as the, quote, Donald Trump deal. It's on the tapes, folks. Now, just as a big old side note to chew on, do you really believe Rudy Giuliani, who made his name with this commission trial, didn't know about SNA and Donald when it was part of the underlying evidence of his entire case and 
falling out of the mouths of every mobster they had on tape? You think he didn't hear that? You think the Southern District, or the FBI, didn't tap on Donald's shoulder at some point? Pull him into a room and say, Hey, so your name is on all these tapes. What's up with that? Maybe help us out with this? This is the stuff that had my hair on fire five years ago and led me to Twitter to begin the chapter of my life researching and exposing what I knew about organized crime. Anywho, back to the build-up to the Paul Castellano hit. The second thing the FBI learned on those tapes was the heroin trafficking ring that the Bergen crew were running. Now, there are varying opinions over whether Paul Castellano knew before the FBI had tapes of Gotti's crew discussing their drug smuggling empire. That he, Paul, had a big revenue stream flowing up to him from heroin trafficking. But, when the feds indicted some of Gotti's crew for it, simultaneous to their building of RICO indictments against the five bosses for the commission trial, the information was made public. And Gotti knew it was just a matter of time. Drug smuggling in the Gambino family equaled death. It was either Gotti or Castellano. Everybody's afraid that Paul was going to move against Gotti and his crew. Gotti, he says, decided to strike first. Gotti sent his right-hand man, Angelo, and he had told me, he says, Sam, he says, we're going to take out Paul. He says it took seven months of careful planning. The hit would take place at Sparks Steakhouse, a restaurant in busy midtown Manhattan frequented by Castellano. Seven months. Here we are. Back to that data point. That tiny detail that stuck in the brain and irritated the mind until this history could be fully unpacked. And there's a newer detail to bring back around. It comes again from Sammy in the moment of Gotti's later conviction for killing Big Paul, per the New York Times. Quote, Mr. Gravano, one of the highest-ranking members of the American Mafia, to become a government witness, testified that John Gotti, the boss of the Gambino family, appointed John Gambino a captain in the faction in 1987 and designated him as the group's main link with the mafia heroin dealers in Sicily. Did you hear that? What are the chances that after the removal of Paul Castellano and F.C. Agron, their executioners and successors were running separate massive heroin rings out of neighboring territories with the same supply point. Was John Gotti's source for all that heroin the Russian mafia? Did those same smugglers behind the two hits in 1985 have other tentacles that reached into one another's realms and entwined them in an octopus's embrace? 
I'll leave you with some final details on those Russian criminals who were flooding us in a very specific and targeted way. The first purchasers and early residents of condos in that tower that Roy Cohn rigged, the mafia's SNA concrete poured, and Rudy Giuliani failed to properly bring under his indictments in the commission trial, were even more dangerous gangsters and intelligence agents from the former Soviet bloc. All were connected to a man who would rise with the fall of the Soviet Union to find himself in the number two spot of the FBI's most wanted in the post-9-11 days of global terror. With the heads of Cosa Nostra all chopped off, either by their own hitmen or Rudy Giuliani's commission trial, the path was completely cleared for the Russians to take it all. They did it in the dark, infiltrating us from the underground up, thieving their way through the assets that Lansky and Luciano first started to accumulate and the bosses that followed them to finally get their tentacles around our nation's innermost Hall of Power. Back in the day of the commission trial, whether Rudy was a useful idiot in this or not is something we'll have to keep banging on. Regardless of what he learned or was told from his friend Ronald Greenwald, we can look at his activities in the past decade or more and see the handprint of Soviet-born mobsters and mobligarchs all over it. Just like the ownership handprint that Black Hand Mafia left on his grandfather Vincent's establishment. It all sounds very diabolical. I realize this. The Soviet Union invading us via our crime families. We didn't turn into communists. In fact, in the decades where this was happening on our shores, in our underworld, we were pretty clear that those guys were the enemy. Well, they did. And then the Iron Curtain fell, and the game started dancing in the light. We just weren't seeing it the right way. We ended up in the 1990s and 2000s with a ton of their money flooding our business sectors and politics. It's in there still today, manipulating politicians, tech companies, Wall Street, and perhaps even our media. The Kremlin stuffed us in their treasure chest, and we didn't even know it. They buried us alive. I guess we didn't learn as much about our Cold War enemies as we thought. Maybe that's where we have to leave ourselves in this thought process. Put your mind back in Meyer and Lucky's money pot, in their smuggling empire. That's what bootlegging during Prohibition was. That's what we've been looking at 
all this time, a smuggling empire. Once it was established and used, in a way, leveraged by our gangsters to get what they wanted from our government, from even our intelligence agencies, that became known. As just one example, when Luciano worked a deal with the Office of Naval Intelligence to help them successfully root out spies in order to get his parole from prison, this became known to us, the public. It became known to our allies. It became known to our enemies and the world. The KGB, the Kremlin, knows this history. They also know who Arnold Rothstein and Johnny Torrio and Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano are. They knew in the 70s, and they know now. It's in their archives, just as it is in our archives. I found all this in the public record, and much of it was available from before the Iron Curtain came slamming down. There's a common theme of denial with the former KGB folks that I've spoken to. There's only been two, by the way, and one conversation I shared with you on this series. When it comes to their training by the KGB during the Cold War, they say that the Soviet Union didn't understand the United States very well, if at all. They may have been flooding us with their spies and the gangsters they snuck into the flow of emigres, but they didn't know us or our history. They didn't know our culture. That's what they tell me. This is an implausible narrative. We are an open society. They spoke English there in Moscow and beyond. They were capable of using language. They had translators who could translate English into Russian. To think that the world's greatest spy agency in our adversaries, which at the time was the KGB, couldn't read our newspapers, watch our movies, or translate anything in English into Russian, that's where you have to stand. That's what you have to believe to buy that line of horseshit. You have to stand in a state of that degree of ignorance. And you know what, America? We've been standing in that degree of ignorance for a really long time. We did not and have not learned how to think the way our enemy does in that era or today. This is why they laugh at us. If a KGB guy says, yeah, we really didn't understand you, we just sort of accept it. We shrug. We don't question. If he says it convincingly enough, which they are very good at. To believe it, you'd have to embrace the fantasy that during the Cold War, we, the United States, were some kind of hermit nation. A mystery. As if we were, what, North Korea? Yet, they can all cite lines from Dallas, that soap opera, at the drop of a hat.
It's insane. It's insane to accept that narrative. It's insane to think that our biggest enemy had no idea how to interpret us, our culture, our history, which was all out in the public. Even our underworld history was in the public domain. The Last Testament of Lucky Luciano? That was published in 1974. Before Paul Castellano was killed. Before F.C. Agron was killed. Before the next wave of Russian mafiosos, like Ivankov, were sent over to us to take over F.C.'s empire. All of Hank Messick's reporting on Lansky was even earlier, while Meyer was still alive. You think the KGB couldn't get their hands on published books? The Kafafer hearings, a Senate committee to investigate organized crime and political corruption in 1950 and 51, where kingpins like Meyer Lansky, a Russian immigrant, Mickey Cohen and Frank Costello all testified, was broadcast on the radio and television. It was the biggest damn thing on all our airwaves at the time. You think the KGB didn't have radio or couldn't turn on the TV? They knew us. Of course they knew us. We couldn't stop telling them who we were. We couldn't stop talking about these gangsters. We couldn't stop putting them in movies and on television. We couldn't stop writing about them in the press. Even before the war. And although Elizabeth Friedman's work may have been kept secret from the American public, it was not secret from our allied intelligence forces like the Soviet Union. We were fighting a war together. And she also had been in the press in the 1930s. She was a very famous woman for doing what? For taking down these gangsters. How was she doing it? She was decrypting code. She was working for law enforcement and intelligence agencies. She was the godmother of cryptanalysis. Her husband was the most famous mind in intelligence in the world at the time. He decrypted purple. Purple! William was not a secret. He was in the black chamber. Yardley wrote that book about it. Although some of the things we've covered about the world beneath may be news to you, Americans, the audience, it's not news to the Kremlin. It wasn't news to the KGB when they sent F.C. Agron over. The number one item on their list was to spy on us. And our underworld was all in the public domain. Our mafia leaders were in the public domain. The kind of power and influence they had over our politics was in the public domain. The size of their treasure was in the public domain. Their business, how to work with them, and where to find and infiltrate them was in the public domain. We, 
in the realm of the light are the ones who've been walking around with our heads in the dark. You want to be woke? Wake up to this. Knowledge is power. So where do we go from here in our story? Well, let's look in the public domain to our original gangsters, to where we last left, Lansky and Luciano. Just because Lucky went into exile doesn't mean he was done. He wasn't going to stay stuck in Italy. He got some travel visas. Where? Same place Meyer got them. One place in particular, where they would both hit the beach regularly before the Soviet Union took it over. Cuba. The last day on Ellis Island, Lansky and me had a meet, just the two of us. I told him something that none of the other guys knew up to that point. That I'd already made connections in Italy to get visas under my real name, Salvador Lucania. That would be good for Cuba and Mexico. This story ain't over. We're headed west, into the sun, for season two. The brightest man in the political world in this country or any other country today. I'm going to visit him in that house one day very soon. I'll see you in the desert. Say hello to Lucky. I'll see you at the casino. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Sands Hotel proudly presents the star of our show. We uncovered a strong outside connection with the East Coast families, the Genovese family, the Gambino family. We uncovered a strong presence uh, with Chicago organized crime, with the syndicate. Opposing the bill was Jimmy Hoffa, leader of the Teamsters Union. I would be very happy. To have our legal counsel here, our legislative representative here, assisting me in spending as much time as necessary. And actually, I had nothing to gain and all to lose. I'll see you in Hollywood, baby. The World Beneath is a production of Imperative Entertainment, created and written by me, LB. Our executive producer is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering is by Shane Freeman. Editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. The World Beneath is a five-season series, with each season consisting of 10 narrative episodes and 10 sit-down interviews. You are listening to Season 1, Treasure. Narrative episodes publish Monday morning and are sit-down episodes on Thursdays, wherever you find your shows. Or binge the entire season now on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at the handle at Lincoln's Bible. Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but 
Are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening, wherever you listen.